Hello and welcome to the 23rd episode of Tailoring in Conversation. In this series, I'll be talking to tailors, cloth merchants, business owners, and other industry participants from all around the globe to gain a better insight into their worlds. My guest for today is James Sleater, the proud owner of Cadna Dandy. Along with his business partner, Ian Myers, James created Cadna Dandy back in 2008, and boy, have they been growing ever since. In our conversation today, we're going to be talking about James's background, the story of Cadna Dandy, and some challenges on Salvaro. Let's get started. James, thank you so much for, for making the time. I've been looking forward to have this conversation. Many people told me that I should have this conversation, so here we are. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted so that someone wants to hear what I've got to say. <laughs> yeah, sure, man. So you, you are, as, as you told, you're in this new premise. You guys have some exciting things going on. Um, what, what are the things that in the short term you have planned for this new premise just to begin the conversation with? Well, so we've got, um, as, as you know, hopefully most people know that we've got our main sort of bespoke shop at number 13, Savile Row. Uh, and that's going to remain our sort of bespoke home. Uh, mm -hmm. But we've also taken on new premises, number seven and eight, Savile Row. Um, and that's going to be our ready-to-wear uh, shop. And I, I'd always said I wouldn't, I wasn't going to do any ready-to-wear because I thought it was just a slight sort of bastardization of our sort of bespoke business. Um, but actually, COVID being COVID and, and the way our sort of business is sort of set up, um, it just makes a hundred percent sense. Mm -hmm. And the doors haven't been open for very long, and they're only sort of tentatively open. We haven't done an official opening, an official launch, or anything like that. Um, but actually what we're seeing, the type of person that's coming in to buy the ready-to-wear is, is, is really very, a very different customer to our sort of uh, bespoke sort of side of things. So it's, it's, it's brilliant from, from our perspective. Obviously, we're seeing a wider uh, demographic of customer or a type of customer, let's say. But it mm -hmm. also means there's, uh, you know, wider, the same applies to the street. There's more people coming to, uh, you know, coming to the street that wouldn't traditionally come here. So it's, you know, it, I think, uh, it, you know, it's a really, really exciting time. Right, right. Okay. Um, for, I always ask this question, whoever I get on, who, who was James at 10 years old? Um, well, I, I was sent away at school at, a, at, a, at an impossibly early age, at, at six. Um, right. So I, you know, I lived away from home at a, 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 you know, a, very young, a very young age, which I definitely I couldn't do for, to, you know, to, to my children, but the world's, the world's moved on. There's a different place. But I, 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 having said that, I absolutely loved it. And I was never, ever homesick at all. And we were presented with so many different opportunities and, you know, the ability mm. to have midnight feasts and pillow fights with, you know, your best mates every night was, 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 was super cool. But um, as a 10-year-old, you know, I think that's just when I was sort of becoming to come out of my uh, shyness. I think I grew up uh, up until that point a pretty a pretty shy child. And I remember one day the deputy headmaster came to grab me and he said, you're reading in church today. And I was crapped my pants and um, thought, fuck, I can't do this. And I hid. And then the next day he grabbed me and goes, you're going to read in church today. And he right. did it. And literally until I, I say, until he broke me, until I broke my shines. Right. Um, and, you know, it, so that, that, you know, I think that the 10 is where you're really beginning to find your sort of character of who you are and, I was very lucky that it was, you know, being based at school, seven days a week, basically. Um, you know, you had so many eyes watching you and really seeing, mm -hmm. your, you know, you develop. Because if you're at school from nine to four or nine to three, um, you know, your teachers see you for that period and then your parents see you for the flip of that. Mm -hmm. But I had so many eyes on us and it was a really sort of pastoral care um, ethos at the school. 
Right. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Right, right. Do you think that you found many uh, good coaches in that time, you know, people around you that kind of like gave you insights and advices, you know, as a, as a kid that you always took with you uh, up until now? Um, well, I think what it really does is allow you to explore what interests you. Mm -hmm. uh, because it, it was it was a school in the middle of the countryside, so it meant that if you wanted to ride a horse, you could ride a horse. If you wanted to go sailing, you could go sailing. If you wanted to be artistic, mm -hmm. you could be artistic. If you wanted to learn fencing, archery, cricket, tennis, hockey, the, the, every opportunity was was mm -hmm. there. So it meant that you weren't just at a school that was good at rugby and you had to fit in within that mold. You could mold right. your own person. So it, it was it was it was it was fantastic. Mm. And what would you say you were most interested in in that time period? Um, probably the more sort of, uh, I, I love sailing. I love the horse riding. Um, mm. Obviously, the main sports of uh, cricket, rugby, and uh, and hockey were were sort of were pretty wicked. But you know, again, just I remember being snowed in. We were meant to go mm. home one weekend, and we were snowed in. And we, it was a house on the top of a hill. The school was a big, grand house on the top of a hill. Snowed in, no one could get up. So we just had the most amazing snowball fights all weekend. And you know, so. It was just wicked. It was just, you know, mm. great time. Sounds like a childhood with a lot of good memories. That's no, great. It sounds like. <laughs> right, right. Okay, moving forward. Um, I know you from Savile Row and Cat and the Dandy, um, but I, I've also heard that you guys weren't in the tailoring business. You guys were in a different career. Could you give yep. a bit of an explanation of what you were doing before you started Cat, and then how the whole journey went towards Cat and towards Savile Row? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I'll t take it back maybe even even earlier than that. You know, when you do your GCSEs and then you sign up mm -hmm. to do your A-levels, at the age of 16, you have to give some thought about what it is you want to do. And unless yeah. you're hell-bent on being a doctor or a lawyer, most people, or maybe I'm pretending it's most people, don't actually really know what they want to do, right? So mm. I just sort of ticked the A-levels I liked, thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll be okay at geography. I can, I can smash that in classics. I can smash that, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and ended up getting okay A-level results, perfectly, you know, you know, fantastic. Um, and then thought, well, what on earth do I want to do at university? I don't really know what I want to do. Probably go into the art world. So I did history of art um, and, and classics, mm. um, a, a joint course. And then I thought, well, actually, you know what? I don't really want to go in the art world because it's, it, it's shockingly poorly paid. Unless you mm -hmm. are a very lofty position to own. When you say art world, do you mean as work as an artist or like galleries and stuff? No, no, you know, a, 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 an art dealer. Right, right, right. I, I have no ability with my hand to draw anything, so I'm, right. I definitely know that that well, that that route in the art world was definitely not one that was afforded to me. Um, mm. And. So I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll go and do history of art and classics and, and I'll, I'll go into the art world. And then after a couple of years at university, I thought, you know, I just really, I'm not sure I want to do this. Didn't know what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at maths. I'm, I'm pretty good on, on, on the phone. I'm, I'll go and work in the city. So I, I got a job working in, in finance uh, uh, as a trader before I'd even graduated. I didn't even bother going to my graduation mm. um, because I was already, you know, in, in the sort of adult world of working. Um, nice. and, and I did that for about 10 years and mm. all the way along, just, I remember having conversations, just thinking, you know, this is just not creative. It's just, I'm not doing anything. I'm just moving numbers from him to her mm -hmm. and big numbers of which I'm getting a very small percentage. Right. Um, right. Quite, 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 money, but, um, yeah. and, and it was, it was great fun, you know, having someone else's credit card and, 
mm. flying around the world to you know meet with people and, and have great parties and, and I'm not quite mm. Wolf of Wall Street big, but you know but we had some we had some pretty good times, um, mm. but nothing nothing creative at all. Mm-hmm. And I remember always going to have suits made with all my friends, um, and just sort of sat there every day thinking, well, why didn't I just do this? Why why is it that you can buy a suit on Savile Row, or how mm-hmm. is it that you buy a suit on Savile Row? for the price that it costs, knowing the root costs of the ingredients that go into it. Right, right. And just thinking, and just looking at the businesses and having things made over the years, just not really comprehending how that can happen. Mm -hmm. And um, I sort of came to the conclusion pretty early on that actually it was, A, that I guess if you've been in business for 200 years, you can charge a very hefty uh, Mm -hmm. price tag because it warrants, the the heritage warrants that. but what happens if you don't fit into that sort of uh, type of customer that you can't afford your £5,000 suit, your £8,500 business suit? But I know mm-hmm. the raw ingredients of this, so how can I get it to people at a cheaper mm-hmm. price without it being just pure arbitrage? So arbitrage right. meaning like, you can just go and buy a cheap shit suit in Thailand and sell it to someone here without adding any value. Mm-hmm. Um, and how old and were there. you at this time? Uh, I would have been, it's a good question, Crumbs, how old am I now? I would have been 28, 29. 28, 20, okay. That's, yeah. um, and so I, I, I was uh, always traveling a lot every week, flying mainly to Scandinavia, where most of my sort of customer clients were. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent a lot of time spent solo, just thinking, well, do I really want to be getting on another flight on a winter's evening on a Sunday night to Helsinki? No, mm-hmm. I don't. So I, I just sort of formulating a plan in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so... I was given the contact details of someone else at the sort of similar sort of age and stage as me wanting to set up a tailoring business, which was Ian Myers, my business partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, it is a winter's night in Helsinki. There is no daylight for love nor money. And I can't bear the idea of another hamburger in my hotel room solo. So I'm just going to call this guy and see what he, uh, what he says. Mm-hmm. And I'll just take all of his ideas and it will move me further along in my journey. Right. Um, and so, so you know, I made the phone call. Then we agreed to meet up in London. And actually, after sort of four or five meetings, we were like, "Well, actually, you know what? We have we have very different skill sets, um, mm-hmm. but a skill set that actually in, is incredibly complementary." Um, mm-hmm. And so, it, we founded the business in in sort of two thousand and seven, I suppose, but officially launched in two thousand and eight um, mm-hmm. after sort of refining our processes really honing down on what we wanted to do having obviously a website built and, and all that sort of stuff takes takes time and right. there's no point rushing these things and and it's you know it's been a it's been a roller coaster ride uh, ever since and mm. you know lucky lucky to say that i've you know i've got a business partner who is as hard working as i am and and you know mm. to this day i think the biggest argument we've ever had was about whether we should put a w- water cooler in our first shop i was actually adamant that we were definitely not putting a water cooler in the shop because it would just make it look like quick fit and he was absolutely adamant that it would just be great because people could help themselves to water. And, and generally, that, that is about yeah. the biggest argument I think that we've ever had. <laughs> right, right. Okay, I have a very curious question. You said yep. something that, that is very interesting and I think it's very honest as well and it's quite humorous as well. So you said, I'm going to call this guy up, I'm going to just steal his ideas and I'm just going to carry on. Now, what exactly happened between the communication and the relation that you guys built over those five or six meetings that you thought you know actually i should team up with this guy instead of just like you know taking some ideas and, and doing whatever it is that i'm going to do but I, I think for anybody in business that it's that i think everyone underestimates actually just how much there is to do 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it is literally endless. Mm-hmm. You know, my first work call this morning uh, was at just before seven a.m. My last mm-hmm. work call last night was around I don't know just before midnight. Right. And it's people based in you know different locations. You know, I, it was a phone call from LA first thing, uh, last mm-hmm. thing last night. Sorry, and a call from um, from Asia uh, this morning. So. It's, it's, it, you know, it, it just never stops. There's always something to do. There's all, you mm-hmm. know, I, I guess that even from a tailor's perspective, you know, you, you'll never meet a tailor that says he's learned everything. And yeah. it's the same in business. You know, we've never achieved everything that we need to do. Aside mm-hmm. from the fact that if you have a, a wider angle lens on this iPhone, you'd be able to see the sort of chaos that is slightly behind yeah. me. You can see just here, you know, part built walls yeah. that, are, you know, need, need to go up so that, you know, there's always something, to, always something to be done. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that's what you know a good business partner uh, enables you to do is the fact that you can have supreme confidence uh, mm-hmm. if you've got a good business partner in the sense that you will both work with the same ethic, the same resolve on different projects that then mm-hmm. meet in the middle. Right, um, and 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 that's exactly what you know we managed to you know sort of afford. And and, and the, the beauty of the relationship for for the two of us is the mm-hmm. fact that we both actually like doing those different things. Mm-hmm. You know, Ian's got a more sort of analytical mind. Mm-hmm. Um, than, than I do. So he, he, you know, he loves to run the sort of uh, the production side of the business, the IT side of the business, the Excel mm-hmm. formulation spreadsheets that everyone mm-hmm. needs to, you know, get a grip with if they really want to conquer, you know, finances and everything else. Um, yeah. And I did all that, and I just can't. Be, I just, you know, hands up. This not for mm-hmm. me. You know, not for not for me anymore. I'd much prefer to be on the sort of creative side of things. Mm-hmm. It's the exact reason I left. You know, my previous um, previous game. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know we're very lucky to sort of as you know have a, have a great sort of working relationship that we both just thrive and strive and it was you know just talking to each other and and, and actually being relatively open and he told me a lot of his ideas and I've said to him you know very categorically that's a great idea you know maybe I'm going to think about that and then I'd give yeah. him a little bit and then in the end we both gave each other so many different tidbits mm-hmm. that we both basically just gave each other the business right um, right right. Right. So, it just, so it just, yeah. Please continue. Yeah. So I, it just it just made you know sort of total sense to um, you know to to do it together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how much? Uh, what would you say were the skills and the the perspectives that you developed before you started working with Ian? That if you didn't have them, or if you hadn't developed them, it would be impossible for you to to start this journey. Because you guys have done um, something pretty big. You, you haven't just like set up a workshop. You guys are like international businessmen. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I, I think the, the, re- the real thing that we wanted to do is to sort of just go into something and try and change. Mm-hmm. Just try and change how, thing, how things are done. Not sort of lose the sort of integrity of anything, but just to sort of try and change it. Because, you know, at one point, this street was about change. And yes. at one point, the old guard were the change. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's sort of too much romanticizing about the past when it comes to Savile Row and not enough forward thinking about its future. Because mm-hmm. if we only look that way, yeah. you know, there, there isn't this way. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so, so that's always our resolve is, you know, how can we make this, you know, how can we improve everything? How, how can we continually work together as a team just to be better and better and better and better and, and to grow things? You know, mm-hmm. because you know, it's, you know, I, Ian and I don't want to be the next suit supply. That's not, not what we want to do. Um, but neither do we want to be that sort of one man craftsman in a room by ourselves. 
mm-hmm. you know, there's at some point there's got to be a sort of uh, you know cap on what we do without losing our sort of direct involvement in the business and. You know, we're not interested in selling out to VC and, and, and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. You know, we're very much hands-on in the business and, and uh, you know, our, you know um, we're here in it every single day doing exactly the same jobs we did from day one. Mm-hmm. And if you would say when we started out, this was phase one, this was phase two, this was phase three, how would you, how would you describe the different stages that you guys had to kind of like literally step by step go through to get the first cat shop running? Because you guys aren't tailors, so you have to work with tailors and then it's like, okay, how can we find the good tailors and how can we find the good manufacturers and all of that? So could you explain a little bit in what stages you guys moved well, yeah, you guys I mean, forward? Actually, when, when, we looked at, when we looked at the business and, uh, and where we are today, they are they're, they're, they are pretty decent, different beasts, actually. Um, you know, I guess from when you set up a business, you know, the first thing you need to do is make sure that you've got customers coming through. And actually winning your first round of customers is pretty easy. Um, you know, you, you can get those with, you know, when you're new, you can always get lots of articles written about you, the new thing and blah, blah, blah. And we were very, very lucky that we had lots of that. And so, you know, I think month one, we probably sold about 10 suits. And month three, we sold 90 suits. And then month four, we went back to selling 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the problem that a lot of tailors fall into is the sort of cyclical nature of tailoring. And then obviously tie that in or compound the problem with, uh, things like a VAT bill for the same month that you haven't got lots of tailors, uh, lots of customers coming in. And, yeah. and, and so it's, it's, it's looking at those things to sort of try and steady the ship mm-hmm. to mean that you never have these sort of huge peaks and troughs in, in, uh, either income or, uh, outgoings. Because you know mm-hmm. it's 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 a balanced ship that floats. Right, 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 right. And would you say that you guys um, worked out the, the 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 bigger picture as you developed the smaller steps, or did you already have one set picture and everything was kind of like step by step taking off? No, no. Exactly. I I remember. Um, you know, we were we were quite clear that we didn't want to go too high on our pricing. Um, you know, mm-hmm. early on. Um, because we wanted to try and attract lots of customers, but obviously knowing that you know there was a sort of critical mass that the business needed to get to to actually make it sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if we don't sell enough suits, we, we, you know, we're not we're not in business. Uh, but that's the same, you know, for any 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 sort of tailoring company out there. But we just work from from the sort of get go to sort of try and even the ship, and and that's partly what we why we've opened this ready to wear shop because I run a pretty different business to to all the other tailors on the street in the sense that mm-hmm. you know we don't have piece workers we don't use out workers and the rest of the street is almost a, reliant, totally reliant on it mm-hmm. um and it, it so it means that we have the same amount of hands each month to keep busy right, and so then responsibility right. comes from the marketing sort of side of things or the customer liaison sort of side of, you know proactively calling back in customers and trying to attract attract new customers to make sure all the hands you know, are there and, and, and not just a pure liability for the you know business from a, from a financial perspective. Um, but, you know, that we, but we use it as, a, as an absolute asset that we can all sort of, you know, grow the business together. Right, right, right. That makes sense. I, uh, yeah, I guess as you're describing it, you, you guys seem to be very flexible at the same time, strategic in what the choices you make, because, uh, you're creative, you come up with new ideas as you go along, and then you have yep. your partner, Ian, who is kind of like making sure that things can be put in context 
and developed further. So they're not just like floating ideas. Yeah. You've been on Savaro for how, how many years now? Uh, 2008, 2010, I think we started sharing a shop with Chiller and Morgan. Um, right. and, and, and that was great. And initially we just said, well, look, can we just use it Saturdays? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we said, well, actually, can we use it Wednesdays and Saturdays? And then uh, it got to the point where we were, you know, using it six days a week and 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 um, and, and, and making a, a pretty sizable contribution to the total amount of the rent. Um, mm-hmm. And then one day, Ian saw someone walking down, carrying some boxes, and just went mm-hmm. up to them and said, "You know, are you moving out?" And they went, "Yeah, yeah, there we are." We are. Um, so we, Ian very quickly grabbed the details of the, of the company that were moving out and. Um, we entered into a bit of a bidding war to take on the premises. Um, and I, I, I love our, our bespoke shop at 13. It's, it's, it's incredibly nice um, having all the light and all the air and, and, a, and a very long shop. Well, you know what it's like at, at Chilbrum uh, and Morgan. A lot of these shops have, you know, the sole source of air is the front door. Yes. And at the back on a hot day, it can get pretty, pretty, pretty feisty. Um, yeah. and, and luckily we've got windows and doors and things all the way through. So it's it's, mm-hmm. it's 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 a really nice light working uh, environment, and and obviously very welcoming. I think for customers, um, once you're brave enough to walk up the first flight of stairs. Yeah, yeah. So 2010. That's you know that's that's a good amount of time. Now I think you guys are pretty much outsiders to this industry in in a good sense that you don't have the attachments that uh, other tailors may have because you literally have to kind of like create your own future and you haven't inherited like a shop or a name. Yeah. Um, James, what would you say in, to your experience, the things that you've observed in the last, let's say 10 years, 15 years, whatever, what do you think that are some of the biggest challenges for a place like Savile Row and what blind spots do you think some of the existing companies could have that they may not be aware of? Um, I, th- I think some of it can actually be said of any sort of craft industry in the sense that we're very reliant on learning our craft and the purity of it. Mm-hmm. And the moment you harness any form of um, technology that you're sort of belittling the craft, mm-hmm. and it's a statement that I totally disagree with, Right. Case in point, uh, I should actually look up the figures and tell you, but I think roughly to date we've made 65,000 bespoke suits, roughly. Right, right. And these are bespoke suits, not like... Bespoke, bespoke, right. bespoke. Um, no, that's not including our ready-to-wear or, you know, we, we used mm-hmm. to do made-to-measure, um, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But you imagine how much space 65,000 suit patterns take up. It's an aircraft. A, yeah. An aircraft, because yeah, we used to pay for it to store it. Yeah. It would take, you know, we had, uh, I don't know, 10 customers called John Smith. So not only right. did you have to have John Smith in a warehouse <laughs> the size of an aircraft hangar, you had to find the right one. Yeah. So now we make, we make the pattern. Whether we make it uh, whichever way on a, on a digitized uh, Gerber system or mm-hmm. we, we make it the pattern by hand, we mm-hmm. scan the pattern and we mm-hmm. store all our files and all our patterns digitally. Right. Apart from some of the sort of very sort of sentimental ones, mm-hmm. like you know mine um, or my, I'm joking actually, mine is mine is digitally stored. Um, but it, mean, it means that we, we we have access to it anywhere because we are global and we have yeah. premises, premises in four different countries. It means that if we have a question on a, a, a one of our New York guys has a question on a suit, 
we can look at the soup pattern in New York and the soup mm -hmm. pattern in London in real time and agree what changes or what things we need to do to it. Mm -hmm. rather than sending a paper pattern or trying to use a Zoom call or a Skype call yeah. to, sh to show a run or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's not bastardizing the bespoke trade at all. It's adding to it. We can, yes. we can look in four different locations and get four different opinions mm -hmm. of, of our sort of head tailors in each location of what we should do and yeah. update it in real time so everyone agrees to it. Mm -hmm. So there's so many ways that an industry can use technology or progression, let's call it, mm -hmm. um, without the sort of bastardization. And I think that our industry is, is sort of too hell-bent on not thinking forward and just saying, look, we always do it like this because it's mm -hmm. better, because we've always done it like this, mm -hmm. and, not and not questioning how to make things better. Right. Um, and that is slightly my thing about, you know, trying, if you're trying to make a scalable business using outworkers, every mm -hmm. single one of them is making to a different standard. Yeah. Every single one making a different looking suit. So if you make me a suit, uh, you know, coat maker A makes me a suit, then coat maker B makes me a suit, I might find that my iPhone doesn't fit in one of them. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and for me, that just is sort of slightly mind-blowing. So you know, we make all of our patterns, um, linings and everything, uh, all standard set size. Mm -hmm. And every single person in the company um, has to make to a set standard. And it's a standardization that is probably the hardest thing for the other tailors to, to, to achieve. And it's mm -hmm. the very reason why they haven't been able to make a business. Or maybe, obviously, maybe there's an element that they don't want to uh, become any bigger. But it's the biggest barrier to a tailor becoming a more scalable business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, it's, and it's funny you say that because, first of all, I totally agree with that. I think that modernization of a lot of things that are already there, but they just take a lot of space and are taking a lot of time to just go through, it's just a no-brainer. I don't know exactly where the resistance or the temptation to resist comes from. Uh, it could be just flat out not wanting to put out the work because it does take some effort. You have to learn new things and you have to figure out, yeah. create something, some infrastructure for that. But, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this. and I'd like to know your opinion. You know, so there, there, there is a clientele that says, look, uh, the, I like tailoring, bespoke tailoring for the romance of it, right? I like yeah. to go yeah. there, have the experience. I like to see my handmade pattern and all of that. Yep. Then there is the other type of client that says, look, I don't actually really care about how the thing is done as long as I have just a nice suit that I could wear and like a good experience along the way. How much do you think that clients influence the mentality of the tailors? Because tailors, I can, I can assume that some tailors are thinking like, oh, if we change this and we modernize this, then maybe the romantic client doesn't come back. We lose our face and this and that. How much of it do you think is down to the tailor kind of like telling the client what's up or how much of it is the client telling the tailor like, hey, maybe you could do this and that, you know? I, th I think, I think um, there's an element of it, you know, being some of it being customer driven. Um, I, don't, I don't think a lot of it, um, but I think, I think some of it is, is, is customer driven. But I think a lot of it is you know, we're a craft-based industry. I remember reading an article, I'm not going to tell you which tailor it was, sure. um, but I think it was in 2014 or 2016, there was an article in the Times saying, Savaro is moving forward. Um, mm. It's brilliant. And it wasn't a sort of ironic art, an ironic sort of piece or anything. It just said, you know, Savaro is moving forward. It's begun emailing its customers, led by 
this tailor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just look at it and think, well, name another leading industry, a global leading industry that could have survived to this day not doing emails to its customers. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's slightly mind-blowing that, you know, it's, it, things don't move forward. And, and a lot of it is, I think it has to be slight resistance or lack of knowledge from, from, from some of the, cap- a lot of companies in the sense that, you know, if, if you do digitally store a pattern like we do, mm-hmm. as I say, draft it by hand, whatever you want to do, um, we then digitally store it. But to have that Gerber key, I think is mm-hmm. 8,000 pounds a year. To have right. the scanner is about eight thousand pounds a year, mm-hmm. uh, and then to have someone else knows how to use it is a salary. Um, yeah. To sometimes use harnessing that um, technology costs quite considerably. Whereas obviously, mm-hmm. if you just do it the traditional way and you hang the paper back up, it's not. Mm-hmm. There's no. It's not costing anything. Mm-hmm. But but looking at it from a, a position of growth and how long it was taking us to find patterns. You know, mm-hmm. even though they're alphabetically ordered and, and everything, once you get to making having made so many suits, no matter what you do, if it if it's just stored the traditional way, you will never ever you know find it in a timely manner that makes sense not to do, not to use those sort of pieces of, of sort of tech to add on you know to the business. Mm-hmm. So it's it sounds as if you're describing that more as a uh, practical problem, short term thinking and and a little bit of a hassle that one has to go through to eventually make the investments because they are costly eventually. And short term, they can really hurt a company that isn't maybe making a lot uh, more than it can kind of like afford. Is that roughly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's a bit, you know, a bit like this, where's this, this buttonhole machine here, right? Yeah. Um, you know, lots of tailors would turn their nose up at having a buttonhole machine on, on site. But yeah. if, we get, if we get an alteration, this is actually a shirt buttonhole machine. Um, right. If we if we get an alteration on site, because um, we do customers' alterations for garments we haven't made, right? And we need to mm-hmm. put a machine buttonhole in. The traditional tailors would run down to Sav- uh, run into Soho and get it done. Yes, yes. So eight pounds a buttonhole and an hours of work, uh, an hour worth wasted time. Yeah. But once yeah, you start yeah, seeing, yeah. once you start seeing lots of customers, it makes sense just to buy the machine for four thousand pounds. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and and so there are lots of things that once you get big enough, it makes sense to do this. But once you've got that in your shop, people say, but they use a buttonhole machine. Well, we it's a handmade buttonhole wherever we are, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we have the tech we have the tech in support to us to make our lives easier as and when we need it and as when the customer requires it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're making you're strengthening your company's position and, and the skills that you can have within the company, I guess. Exactly. But bear with me just two seconds. Do you have a, you, a plug for that? Can you find me all my stairs? My battery is about to die, so I need to plug, sure. plug this. <laughs> yeah, see, we've got technology, but not not the. Uh, not <laughs> yeah, we've just acquired these two plants and these two machines. <laughs> battery is running out. <laughs> no, that's that's interesting. That's that's, that's very yeah. fine. Yeah. Hmm. How would what's you? Your thought? What's your what, what's your thoughts on the uh, technology sort of side of things? From uh, thanks, Jack. From from, well, from from companies and and, and and their sort of you know desire to sort of use it or not use it. You know, I I I've been thinking about this, and there are so many aspects that that I haven't thought about yet. But but I try to kind of like make like a blow up image in my mind, see what elements are kind of like involved, and 
I think part of it is just literally the age of, of the owners of most companies. And yeah. when, when you get to like an older age and you're kind of like bombarded with new technology, you really don't, you can't be bothered to just say, hey, I'm going to in my 60s or 70s invest like two years to just learn how someone with Gerber would function within my company. It's just too much hassle, you know? So I think part yeah. of it is that. I think part of it is that obviously everyone on Savile Row used to have in, in their younger ages like a glorified time period, like when they were the new kids on the block. And yeah. I think that that stayed with a lot of them in a way that it feels as if they are still the new kids on the block. And it's not yeah. a bad thing cause, because eventually they are what we as the new generation inherit and they are like our tradition. I think where it kind of like goes wrong is where trust, and I guess this is basically how most, just the structure of the companies. It's very difficult to build trust in a way that an idea that your tailor may have actually travels through the basement up to the work floors upstairs and then also yep. lands with the owner that says, huh, that's a new uh, interesting venture. Maybe we should go into that direction. Yeah. So I think part of it is like age. Part of it is there. there is a weird infrastructure of communication within the companies that doesn't allow the, the, the janitor who's observed something to improve the smallest thing ever in the company and then you know spread that across the company. And I also think it's, because things are so expensive in that in that street yeah. and, and yeah. it's so costly, you can't maneuver really around things that cost just a little bit more than the things that you already are doing. So I think part those are some of the things that, that I've been observing so far. And and I also think that there isn't enough trust within apprentices coming into the shops, actually being invested in in a way that the company says, look. We know that you or some of you may eventually leave, but we are willing to invest the time in you so that if you did like this company, you can stay and actually try as a company to make them stay. But because yeah. there isn't a lot of effort to make them stay, naturally they leave. And then when they leave, it's like, oh, you see, we were right. They all leave, you know? So yeah, yeah. I think part of it is a little bit of that. And I think I, I definitely yeah. communication is I think definitely there's a, a huge part of communication within the tailoring fraternity is is um is what is also what's missing actually. You know, I, how many times have you heard that you know tailors can't cut sleeves? You know, the cutter oh. can't cut <laughs> sleeves and the coat maker has to do it. And you're like, yeah. hold on, this head cutter and he can't cut a sleeve that fits into a body. Like yes. for me it's mind it, it, it's just it's mind blowing that someone could have been in their career for thirty years. Yeah. Regarded as the best guy, but can't cut yeah. sleep. Like, yeah, yeah. But, but it's not necessarily the, the, the cutter's fault, right? It's just the fact that by the time the garment goes to the coat maker, the mm -hmm. coat maker who is probably, you know, as I say, could be an outworker, could be based in a house, whatever, that, mm -hmm. there isn't that communication. And that's yeah. the story that we're always told that the, the cutter works so closely with the coat maker to make the perfect thing. But the coat mm -hmm. maker doesn't, dare, doesn't tell, dare, dare tell the cutter he's done it wrong. Yeah, true, and the, true. And the coat maker fixes it. Yeah, if anything, what happens is that the coat maker fixes the cutter's fault and the cutter thinks he's like really good at his job. <laughs> exactly. But when, when, so we, because we don't use any outworkers, right? Every single person has to mm -hmm. make a piece of work that's going to go around our workshop, around mm -hmm. the floor. You have a feedback a, system. So we, we run a sectionalized system. 
Mm-hmm. So obviously we have um, ind- individual coat makers, um, but then most of our stuff is um, we make a, a, like uh, on a sectionized system. So one team will make collars, one team will make the sleeves, one team will right, make the right. you know, thing and the padding and the collars and, and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, I, I think personally, and you know, I'm happy for anyone to sort of disagree with me, is the best way of getting the most amount of consistency yeah. um, and is the best way of uh, training people. Mm-hmm. Um, quickly on, on all the different sort of functions because it's repetition that's yeah. important. Um, and it's, you know, a, a, an easier way, I suppose, also of, of, of growing a workshop up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agree, man. You allow mastery to happen a lot quicker. You allow a good feedback loop to occur. You create a sort of like a, a blueprint of how the company is supposed to function so that if something goes wrong, you know exactly where to locate it and kind of exactly. like fix it there. Exactly. And, yeah. and, we, and we, we track every process of every garment we make so I can track who made the sleeve for this in, in real time. So I yeah. can see if it's too long, how, why it's taken too long. Has there been a query, a question on it, a problem on it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it, it, all those little things, it's, it just it doesn't take any longer, but it just tells us the entire company in real time where mm-hmm. every single garment is in its production cycle. Yes, yes, yes. So, so here's a question regarding this this whole approach to to a, a systematic way of running this uh, this this company. Clearly, when tailors are being trained up, they are just trained to learn the technical tailoring craft things. They're not really, really trained to run a, or set up or expand um, a tailoring company, right? Yeah. Maybe, th- yeah. maybe they pick up th- some things to run a tailoring workshop, but a company, you know, is very different. Do you think yeah. that with, with the approach that you guys are having, one is required to introduce a new way of educating and, and training up tailors so that they're not just restricted to knowing how to make sleeves, collars, jackets, trousers, or whatsoever? I think, well, everybody has to learn all, all, all of the different facets of it. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, would, I would say that we probably make 75% of our garments using a um, pocket machine. Right. It's laser-guided on a suction yeah, yeah. board. It's exactly the same sewing machine as everybody else uses, mm-hmm. but it has two needles, and it's laser-guided, and sews through. Yeah, but if that if and when that machine goes down, we can't mm-hmm. just stop work, right? So everybody still has to know the function of how to make the pocket. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so as I say, we, we you have to have fa- the, the, a fail safe in place. You know what happens if our printer goes down and we can't mm-hmm. print out a customer's pattern? What is our what is our plan B or mm-hmm. what's our sort of standard plan B when we've got an urgent order? And it's a, a cloth from Italy, and the, and it's in August, and we can't get the cloth for four weeks. You know, there, there has yeah. to, we have to have all these sort of different systems in place that don't mean that we fall flat on our ass, basically. Mm. How about management? Do you guys f- choose your managers based on also their their practical and like sartorial know how, or do you focus more on who can just understand the system better than anyone else? Uh- no, I think I think it has to be. Well, the, the, obviously, there's there's um, a team manager within each of those. There's a you know head collar guy, a head mm-hmm. sleeve guy, blah blah blah. So that's um, obviously by default that's like an ability led skill uh, mm-hmm. or an ability led led function. But you know, if, if, you know, it's, if if we were sort of Abercrombie and Fitch, we'd just you know we'd make the, the best looking manager, the best looking person, the manager of the shop, right? But it's not. Um, 
it's not always the way it's done. It's got to be the right person, the right function at the right time. And it's so knowing our, our system is really easy to use, by the way. It's um, it's not mm-hmm. it's not it's, it's not difficult. But honestly, someone who had never used a computer before. Well, I see them when he joined us. He was head cutter at Norton's and he's worked at Anderson and Shepherd and he's worked at, as a cutter at uh, Huntsman. But, you know, never, mm. never used a computer at work. But he uses it brilliantly and mm. every single fitting, he puts everything yeah. on the computer. So the notes are stored digitally for us all to see. Mm-hmm. And so we're not reliant on using scrolls of paper and missed bits of information or whatever. Yeah, it's just yeah. all there, stored, saved. The customer can mm-hmm. refer to it. Or if Stephen was hit by a bus or whatever, mm-hmm. and that garment's still in that process of being made, every single person in our company can look up exactly what Stephen did then. Right, 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 right. Hmm. Let's hope he doesn't okay. get hit by a bus. No. <laughs> no. Okay. So... I'd like to know a few things. The first thing is, what sort of a vision do you guys have moving forward for CAD? Uh, and and this is so. He, hold on, let me just say something as well. I've, if I if I bring out all the memories that I have from conversation where conversations where CAD and Dandy was was mentioned, yeah, I got eighty percent hate hateful things jumping out of people really yep. emotionally charged like what the fuck are yep. you guys do you know these guys are bastardizing south da, da, da. and like 20 percent of people would be like you know these guys know exactly what they're doing so yep. i don't know what those things those those negative uh, opinions are based on i can guess i could probably have an idea of why but what should what should the average person expect from Cat and the Dandy on on Savile Row. You know what? What do you guys stand for? Like, what's 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 up? You know? Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's 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 always there's always going to be that negativity if you try and uh, challenge the status quo. Yeah. The reason why not not even the reason why there's uh, negativity, but just to sort of emphasise mm-hmm. the sort of bizarreness of it. Um, you know, it, after two years, I petitioned the Savaroe Bespoke Association to open a coffee mm-hmm. shop on the street using one of the empty shops. I said, come mm-hmm. on, guys, why don't we do this? It's a collaborative thing. All the houses can use it. We all like a coffee. There's an empty shop. It looks shit. Why don't we do it? Mm-hmm. Nothing. No, no progress, nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So it, it, in lockdown one, I spoke to the landlord and said, look, when we reopen, the key thing for all of our businesses is going to be footfall. And Savaroe has no footfall. Right. Can you give me a unit of which I'll pay you a notional rent on and I will do the coffee shop and nice. I will bring people free. And so I put my money where my mouth is and I could have called it the Cat and the Dandy Cafe Shop, whatever. I didn't. I called it the service. Yeah. And the first thing I did, I hosted an exhibition to all the other tailors on the street. Mm-hmm. Put your work in here and we'll put a big plaque and I paid for all of that. Mm-hmm. Not one other tailor would have organized that for any other tailor on Savile Road. Mm-hmm. Four of the big houses wrote the letter of complaint to the landlord saying that a coffee shop would attract the wrong type of person. So we can deep dive and analyze what the wrong type of person is. Yeah. But you know what? Coffee is one of life's great levelers that you and I both drink it. Yeah. And your budget might be five pounds for coffee and mine's three quid. But you know what? We're still in the same ballpark. Mm-hmm. It's not a bottle of Petrusse where, you know, it's way above my budget, but it's your sort of daily drinking, right? This is... Yeah a function just to get people on the street mm-hmm. and not one of the old school owners will go into that coffee shop and buy a coffee because they think they're putting a pound in my pocket and you know what 
to this day, I think it's probably made about 800 pounds. Mm. And mm -hmm. I continually host events in there to the rest of the streets. So if you go in there at the moment, there's uh, the exhibition for the Savaro Concourse. So all the tailors that have worked with car companies in the past have their garments in there, displaying their work with their plaque and their name on it. Mm -hmm. But they all hate cat. Mm -hmm. So I, as I say, it, it can, you know, it, it, I don't want to be bitter about it. It's just one of those things that, you know, if you challenge the status quo and you do something a bit different, mm. you know, and it's, oh, we make all of our suits overseas. Well, that's a load of bollocks. I probably make more suits on Savile Row than any other tailor on Savile Row. Mm. I make for two other companies on Savile Row. Mm -hmm. And, and you'll, you'll get the ranking of tailors, like who makes the best suits. Oh, right. no, they make much better suits than CAD. Well, I make the suits for them. Right, right. Isn't that interesting? We make we make currently for just under fifty other tailors <laughs> on a B two B business. In in we mm -hmm. make for tailors in Paris, uh, obviously our, our company in Sweden, uh, but also a, a lot of tailors in America, a couple of tailors in Italy, mm -hmm. um, and they're all handmade bespoke suits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so there, there's always there's always going to be that sort of negativity, and, and you know, obviously that's something I'd like to change. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's you know, you you can't control other people's behaviour. And all the young guys from Savaro, all the other tailors from every other shop, go in there and have a coffee and and, and mm. say, say, look, James, this is great. Um, this is bringing people onto the streets, and it really has, by the way. Yeah, it really yeah, yeah, has yeah. brought the type of people onto the street. Not the wrong type of people, the right type of people. All people coming onto the street, surely the right mm. type of people. Um, yeah. But, you know, but where we go as a business, you know, I don't, it's, as I say at the, at the beginning, it's not, we don't want to be a suit buy. We just mm -hmm. want to have a business that's, you know, a steady growing ship where we can constantly, you know, imp improve things and, and, mm -hmm. and not stay stuck in the past and, and, and constantly move and progress and, and, and make things better. I never, ever would like to stagnate. As I say, mm -hmm. I've got two, two, two settings. I'm inherently a lazy individual, right? The moment mm -hmm. I, I'm not busy doing something, I just want mm -hmm. to lie down. So I never allow myself to lie down. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just always have to be on the go, always thinking of things mm. that, you know, that we could be doing that's better. Yeah, and that's I guess that what you've done with, with the service is you've recognized a need for some sort of a community center, basically, where, where everyone can share their stories, have a great time together if they're off for lunch or, you know, just to see their clients or whatsoever. And you've kind of like acted towards that and, and made it happen. Um, you know, a coffee shop, it doesn't, I don't think it only attracts the, the right people. It, it actually allows other shops to attract other shops. You know, you've, the, you know, it's, I think what you've done, I, I know you guys are competitive and you guys are kind of like aggressively growing, which is absolutely fine for a business. It, if anything, a successful business has to do that. But I, I also recognize in the story that you say is that, you also know that for you guys to succeed, you have to create, you have to make sure that the community can kind of like prosper as well. And there's no yeah. point in you guys so, having, no, yeah. No tailor is bigger than Savile Row, right? Mm -hmm. And before COVID, there were 14 empty shops on, on Savile Row. And, and yeah. now there aren't. Mm -hmm. But the problem the landlord had and the problem that tailors had, no tailors could really afford to fill the empty units. And, mm -hmm. and you were having elected choices like Tom Sweeney not wanting to be on Savile Row, yeah. uh, Chiffonelli not wanting to be on Savile Row. Well, they're, mm -hmm. they're two of the best tailors in the world, right? 
And yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if they're making a better decision not to be on Savile Row, there is almost mm. therefore an inherent problem about Savile Row. Yes. Those the other empty shops, a lot of them have um that you know they, they won't actively rent them out on the the other the, what's called the bad side of the street, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Um they won't rent those out to uh, tailors. They mm-hmm. want to rent them out to um you know to other retail right. um run craft based retail. But the problem is they'll always be empty until there is footfall on the street because why would you take a shop on Savile Row when you could take one on German Street? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Footfall's five times the amount. So the landlord mm-hmm. also has that inherent problem that mm-hmm. to attract new interesting companies in. The rest of Savile Row is saying, well, we need another shoe company. We need a watch company. But if you just think of the process of logic, mm-hmm. why, would you put, why would you put a non-tailoring shop on Savile Row if there isn't footfall? If anything, that's bastardizing Savile Row. Hmm. Empty shops are ruining Savarro, or were ruining Savarro. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I still think, you know, the, the best street shops and best streets are in London that are the ones of, you know, slight mixed retail. You know, Savarro mm-hmm. can be protected, but have a great restaurant like Scott's is on Mount Street. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's you know that's what the street needs to attract sort of people, a, a reason to come here other than a point, an appointment to see your tailor, just to browse, just to walk down and say, oh, you yeah. know, I'm going to quickly into the Anderson the Shepherd haberdashery and see. Mm-hmm. You know what what they've got going on today, or nip into Drake's, and and and, and then they go. Oh, you know, I'm going to get a bespoke one made. I'm nipping and see what Richard Anderson is doing, and 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 that's the the way the sort of the, this this community has to work. You know, right? We we are a street in essence of competitors, but there is mm-hmm. an element of that we have to work together to survive. Yeah. And, and 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 I guess on the one hand you can say, well, if there's a coffee shop on the street, it's taking up the space of a tailor. Mm-hmm. I, I can assure it's not because the rent on that place is monstrously big. Mm-hmm. Uh, the premise is monstrously big. Um, that I, I'm not sure that there's a tailor out there that would would, would be able to fill it. Mm. Is the coffee shop there to stay? You would say? No, the, I've I've agreed with the landlord um, a year's extension. Um, mm. uh, fundamentally, I don't want to be a coffee shop owner, really. Right? Fine. This is not my. Uh, I'm not. This is, I'm not trying to make the service Starbucks. I'm just mm. trying to make it fulfill a function. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've agreed to do it for one more year, but I also have an agreement with the landlord that if they rent it out to someone else, mm-hmm. I'm happy to move on at any point. Right, right, because right. right. I'm, as I say, my thing is, I, I, I really, and, it, and it's, it sounds like a, a, a lie, but it's not. The, the street has to survive. The street has to thrive. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, the street is bigger than us. And mm-hmm. I'd prefer to see more people on the street, happier people on the street, doing lots of different cool things. Than uh, a street of, of sort of tumbleweed, yeah, and that's yeah. where the street was. Right? That's really where the street was. Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree, man. All right, let's let's do the speed round and then wrap it up. I've got a few words. I'd like to know the first thing that pops up your mind. So, okay. all time all time hero, all time hero. Ah, oh, yeah, Rams, really tough one. All time hero, Winston Churchill. <laughs> Very Savile Row. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, systems. System. Yeah, systems. Systems. Brilliant element of business. Brilliant element of business. Art. Necessity. Necessity. Bespoke tailoring. Beautiful. Beautiful. Luxury. Equally beautiful. How would you define business? Um, has to be one that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. And how would you define quality? 
the best in its field. Best in its field. SRBA. SRBA, Savile Row Bespoke Association. Yeah, yeah. Virtual, the reason the street might die. Ooh, okay, right. Very, 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 very interesting. Golden Shears. Uh, should be more. Should be more. Tailoring schools. Uh, brilliant. Brilliant. Made to measure. Uh, has its place. Has its place. Apprenticeships. Necessity. Competition. Fantastic. Vision. Key, vital. Key and vital. vital. Heritage. Double-edged sword. Double-edged sword. Savile Row. World leading. World leading. Last but not least, James Sleater. Just trying to play my part. Right, right. Man, this is incredible. I loved, I loved this conversation. It was uh, one, of, one of the conversations I've, I've been willing to have for a very long time. And I felt like there was some, uh, some good dynamics going, man. Thank you. Thank you very no, much. No, no. And I really appreciate it. And can I just justify my comment on the SLB? Sure, please do. The, 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 the essence of it is a great thing. Mm -hmm. As I said, the, the street needs to work together and sort of collaborate. Mm -hmm. The problem is if you have a body that doesn't do all the assets of what it needs to do, it's a bit like mm -hmm. the Emperor's New Clothes. You yeah. think you're protected because you've got a body. Mm -hmm. But if one that doesn't sort of promote also doesn't protect, and one that only protects doesn't promote, and, and they're the sort of two assets of, of, of what this street really needs is a sort of dynamic um, association that ticks mm. both boxes and is progressive um, and, and not just a sort of sort of slight sort of vanity project for, for you know for something it has to materially make a change because the, the way I look at it right Savro is not in a better place than it was 20 years ago or 30 yeah. years ago or 40 mm -hmm. or 100 years ago so if we're on a downward trajectory Mm -hmm. now is the time to address it mm -hmm. because there's only so far until you hit the bottom mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it needs it needs all of us to have our heads knocked together mm -hmm. and, and and work together and promote each other and help each other that you know uh, we don't have any dinner suits left in our ready to wear mm -hmm. well we send them to Richard Anderson because he's got a small selection of ready to wear and so does Huntsman and, 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 and that's the essence of business at some point Mm -hmm. Huntsman's going to be too expensive for that customer and they send them to us and and we're a small little community and and, mm -hmm. we, and we should rise above the sort of pettiness of of, of competition we mm -hmm. still need to be competitors but we need to look at each other and say well you know what? you just trumped me mm -hmm. uh mark henderson stopped in and i in the street he used to he used to run Peter and hawks and we've been in business for like six months and he said right uh, we didn't know who he was by the way so i uh i, I run Peter and hawks and our aim is to beat your website this year and we've been in business for six months and we pinched ourselves like, that's just weird. Like we're already getting people saying they want to beat us. Like this is great. We must've done something right. Mm -hmm. And then I remember looking at Eves and Hawks' website uh, about four years ago. And I said to Ian, they've done it. They've actually beaten our website. Mm -hmm. And we went back to the board and redid ours. And that's mm -hmm. the element of competition that is so great and is so healthy. Yes. And it is, and it is, Brilliant. And they're obviously in a difficult place at number one at the moment. And if they are to go, that's dreadful. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, we need all these businesses to survive and thrive. Mm -hmm.
mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and help talk about each other, promote each other, and, and, and long may this streak continue. Mm. Well, I'd like to ask one more question in regards to what you just said. So, yeah. so here's, a, here's a practical, let's say, scenario. Suppose, James, that tomorrow you had a magic wand and you could make any change to Savile Row or Savile Row Bespoke Association or the community of tailors in London. What would be the first three things that you would change, let's say? Um, I would put a big restaurant on here. Mm-hmm. Probably from the old Kilgore shop. Um, I would probably ask every single member house, member house, I mean member of the street, mm-hmm. um, to attend a sort of marketing course. Right. Um, and probably a VM course. Mm. Because I think it's, 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 about, you know, it's about promotion. And the, I think the tailors within industries can always find apprentices and they're always people coming in and handing in CVs, as you know, right? So mm-hmm. I think that pipeline is, is, is probably pretty good, mm-hmm. but it's about everyone selling their wares. And, and, and I want, honestly, I want everyone's window display to be better than ours so that mm-hmm. I try harder to beat it. Right. And, and that's, how, that's how, you know, competition works. And it, yeah. it's not unhealthy and it is brilliantly healthy because mm-hmm. if we're always trying to make things better, we need a reason to make it better. Yeah, yeah. So I would get all the guys to sort of, you know, go on a marketing course, VM course, and then and, 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 and so they're my three things, restaurant, VM, marketing. Mm-hmm. Thank you, James. Thank you. Pleasure, mate. Pleasure. And that was James. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. What did you think about the things we discussed? Please share your thoughts in the comment section as I would like to know what you think. If you'd like to see more from Cat and the Dandy, check out the links in the description of this video. And if you like our content and you'd like to support us, then please subscribe to our channel. Until the next time, bye-bye.